And we're continuing in our series of messages in the Gospel of John. We have reached the point where we're getting into the pivotal moment, not just in the Gospel of John, the pivotal moment in the history of the cosmos, uh, the moment where God made right all that was wrong. So uh, that's kind of, uh, obviously, you know, the Gospel of John is about the message who became flesh. We're in that portion of John telling us about the message uh, and how that message was conveyed through what occurred at the cross. So we'll be looking at that in chapters 18 and 19 of John. I don't know if you've been listening to the news lately. Uh, I occasionally, when I'm driving around town, uh, will turn on NPR and I'll, I'll hear people talking. And I've, I've heard people talking about the economy. And it's kind of concerning. I get the sense when I'm listening to them that they're all kind of tiptoeing around the issue. They're kind of walking on eggshells because they're afraid of inducing panic. Um, and the word recession is... is being thrown around and uh, some people want to assure us no don't worry about it we'll be able to avoid it we'll we'll make it out of this we'll have uh, I think the term they like to use is soft landing uh, others say no it's it, this is uh, the the horse is out of the barn there's no stopping it it's inevitable and the world is reeling from the effects of the pandemic of covid from the recent effects on world economies of Russia, russia's aggression against ukraine and the energy crisis that's going on in western europe now uh, and some people say there's no stopping these forces at work. I hate to think of unavoidable bad things, don't you? I'd much rather the opposite. Wouldn't it be nice if good things up ahead were unavoidable, if they were unstoppable? Well, maybe you agree with me. If you do, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that today I am going to talk about an unstoppable good thing at work in the world. So we're in John chapter 18. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses. I have titled the message, Unstoppable God. Let's jump right in, verse 1. Having said these things, Jesus went out with his disciples across the winter brook of the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas, the one who handed him over, also knew the place, for Jesus often gathered there with his disciples. We're picking it up right after Jesus concluded in chapter 17 his prayer for the disciples and he's prayed that the disciples yet to come would have perfect unity because in that perfect unity which God the Father is to accomplish in us, in that perfect unity the world will be able to look at that and believe in Jesus and actually receive the gospel message and it not just bounce off of them but actually penetrate and transform the world. That unity is key, absolutely crucial uh, to the world coming to believe. So he's wrapped that up and now we get into the part where Jesus is going to do what makes this message we are trying to share uh, a good message. He's actually going to accomplish 
the redemption that his disciples are going to start telling others about. He's about to go to the cross and take upon himself the sin of the world. All that is wrong in, in the whole universe from the dawn of time until the end of time, all of that, Jesus is going to take all of that upon himself. So John con continues with his story and says, having said these things, after he said all this prayer and talked to his disciples and prayed, prayed about them, he goes with his disciples across this winter brook of the Kidron Valley. This is the idea of a brook that isn't flowing all year long, but that in winter when there's more rain, uh, there would be water in this ravine. But uh, Probably in April when we're talking, there might not have even been water there at this point, but so it would have been an easy uh, place to cross. And they go into a garden. Uh, we know from the other Gospels it's probably a walled garden. We know that it has a name, Gethsemane, which might indicate that it was a, a private property. Maybe uh, some wealthy person owned it, someone who was sympathetic to Jesus and his ministry and granted Jesus access to this garden. Uh, we're not positive about these details, but we do know there's this garden and that's the location of it. So Jesus goes there and goes in there with his disciples. And John points out to us that Judas, and he, he seems to always want to remind us who Judas was in the story. Judas, the one who handed him over. Judas, the one who delivered Jesus over into the power of people who would beat him and spit upon him and ultimately nail him to a cross and where he would hang until he died. That Judas, he also knew the place. For Jesus often gathered there with his disciples. I'm struck by this note because it's clear reading the Gospels that Jesus knew from the start that Judas did not believe. Jesus knew from the start that Judas had not really bought into the kingdom. He knew from the start that ultimately Judas was going to choose greed over what Jesus was offering. Ultimately, he was going to try to make some money and uh, would turn away and, and not continue with Jesus. And ultimately, he would end in despair and destruction. Jesus knew that because of Judas, he would be arrested in the middle of the night and he would be beaten all night long and he would be scourged horrendously and then... Uh, mocked and then stripped naked and nailed to a cross where he would die. He knew that Judas was going to knowingly deliver him over to the men who would do this to him. And yet, Judas that night knew exactly where they were going to be. Because Jesus never excluded him from what they were doing. He never said, you know, Judas, I, I kind of, and there are plenty of rumblings leading up to this. Jesus is very clear. He knows what, what's going on. But he never once kept Judas at arm's length. He never once excluded or shunned Judas, even though he knew he had every right to because Judas was an imposter. He was not a disciple. And yet Jesus showed to Judas the same love 
and the same opportunity he showed to all the disciples. He let him be a part of all the inner workings of what they were doing. He knew exactly where they tended to go at night to pray and the garden in which they met. He knew all of their patterns because Jesus kept him a part of it. He did not exclude him at all from his love and from his teaching and from everything that he was giving all of the other disciples. It strikes me that we as Christians don't always follow that pattern of behavior. Uh, sometimes we, we throw up walls to exclude people from things. And uh, we limit participation in things. You, you have to kind of jump through some hoops and prove yourself before we'll let you into these inner circle workings of the life of the church or these inner areas of what's going on in the church. Or uh, there are even churches who limit their Lord's Supper participation to people who are members of that specific church. If you're a Christian but don't happen to be a member of that church, you might be visiting uh, they wouldn't let you participate even in communion. Isn't that ironic? Excluded from communion. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't care that Judas was going to betray him. He offered him the same love and the same access that he offered everybody. I think that's, that's a good model for us on how we are to treat people around us and not predicate our love and our inclusion and our welcome. Uh, base it on, on people's response to the gospel and to us. Jesus told his disciples that they were to love their enemies. That we are to pray for those who persecute us. And he demonstrated it so clearly in how he dealt with Judas. The reason Judas knew where he could lead this mob in the middle of the night to arrest Jesus under the cover of darkness was that Jesus did not in any way exclude Judas from what he was up to. He didn't shun Judas. He didn't exclude him. Even to the very end, even to the very night upon which he betrayed him, Jesus was including him. Let me ask you, how do you treat those who would be near you, yet do not embrace your faith? Do you keep them at arm's length? Do you expose yourself to being hurt? Let's continue verse 3. So Judas, taking the military unit and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, comes there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, there's some debate I've noticed uh, reading uh, other authors that talk about these verses. Uh, some suggest that when this word here, military unit, everybody agrees about this. This word in Greek that's translated military unit tends to be used to refer to a, a uh, cohort of Roman soldiers that would number 600. Now, it seems obvious that there weren't 600 Roman soldiers there to arrest Jesus. That would have been way too many people. But uh, it might simply mean that there was a group from within that uh, Roman cohort that uh, 
went there along with officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. Now some scholars say that no, that, that can't refer to Roman soldiers because why would Roman soldiers go along with Jewish officers and then take Jesus not to the praetorium but take him to Annas, uh, Annas's house, the, the father-in-law of the high priest, uh, that if the Romans were arresting him they would take him to the Roman authorities. Uh, that's what Craig Keener says in his commentary. But uh, others suggest, and I, I think I, I agree with them, we know from chapter 7, this very same word, officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, in chapter 7, they send these officers to arrest Jesus to the temple, and they come back empty-handed. And when they come back, they say, where's Jesus? We sent you guys to arrest Jesus. And they say, no one has ever spoken like he did. They were unable to arrest him. And I, I don't find it all that hard to believe that the chief priests and the high priests and their family would use their political influence and would talk to Pilate and say, uh, give us some Roman soldiers to make sure I, our guys don't lose their nerve and make sure that they can get this arrest taken care of and that Pilate, during the time of Passover where the population in Jerusalem would be many, many times more than the normal population in Jerusalem and the Romans were very interested in keeping the people Peace, that they would be more than happy to use some of their soldiers to help the high priest and their family deal with uh, a troublesome person. Uh, so I, I think probably what we have here is the, the officers we've talked about from chapter 7 accompanied this time by some Roman soldiers provided by Pontius Pilate to make sure that they get the arrest done, that they take care of this uh, and uh, during this time of Passover the Roman authorities would be very interested in keeping peace. Let's keep reading verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all the things which were about to come upon him, went out and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He tells them, I am he. And Judas, the one handing him over, was also standing with them. Then when he told them, I am he, they withdrew and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go away. So that the word he had spoken might be fulfilled. Of those whom you have given me, I did not lose a single one. I think when John is writing this gospel, he probably wrote it late, maybe the 80s AD, so several decades after the events of Jesus' ministry. And at this point, uh, the gospel is being proclaimed and shared throughout the Roman world. And I bet that many people, when they first heard this message about a crucified Messiah, thought that was the most absurd thing ever. And you would think the Christians would be embarrassed by the fact that their leader died on a Roman cross. That was the most humiliating form of public execution ever devised. It was meant to strip you of all your dignity 
and to grind you into the dust and to make clear to everyone that the Roman Empire has power and these guys have nothing. And the story for most people would be, oh, so Jesus thought he could take on the Romans. He thought he could rise up and be somebody. And he miscalculated because the Romans ended up getting a hold of him and they hung him on a cross and killed him. End of story. John wants to make sure as he tells people about the cross that we understand that this is not like every other cross that the Romans ever used. This is not like any other death that ever happened. This is not like any other execution of a criminal that ever took place in the history of humankind. He begins by letting us know that at this very moment, Jesus knows everything that's about to fall on him. He knows all that's coming up. He knows about the beatings and the insults and the slapping and the mocking and the crown of thorns and the scourging that's going to likely cut his, his back to the bone. And he knows about the cross. He knows everything that's coming. And he doesn't try to slip away in the darkness he doesn't hide from it. He gets up and goes out to meet the people who are about to arrest him. It's very clear in all of this who's in charge of the situation, who is in control of what's going on here. This isn't some terrible miscalculation on Jesus' part. He thought he had it under control and it went wildly out of control for him. No, he is in absolute control through the whole event. And he's the one who steps out to confront the mob and says, who are you looking for? And they respond with kind of a, a bit of a, a, a slur. They don't say Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the healer, Jesus the preacher. They say, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. We know from the disciples themselves, even those who believed in Jesus, that none of them were impressed by the fact that Jesus came from Nazareth. In the Gospel of John earlier we read in chapter 1 verse 46 when Philip goes to Nathanael and says, Come and see, I've found the guy. He says, Really? Who is he? Well, Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's... It's the common uh, approach. N none of the rabbis, none of the religious teachers said anything about Nazareth because none of the prophets mentioned Nazareth. So they assumed this was a nothing little town in the middle of nowhere. This is where yokels and, and hicks live. And it was meant to be kind of an insult. We're looking for Jesus, this backwoods preacher. In fact, even when the church began and Christians were sharing, sometimes enemies of the, the faith would try to dismiss Christians as Nazarenes. It's interesting how many Christians have taken pride in that name. To this day, in Iran, Christians who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus, have you seen them with the Arabic uh, letter that would uh, be the first letter in Nazarene to identify themselves? Um, so they, they, they say, we're looking for Jesus, this nobody. And Jesus responds, I am. 
Now that, that term in Greek, you've heard me talk about it before because Jesus has used those two words throughout the Gospel of John. Ego I me. I am. Now, obviously, in common parlance, that's in Greek a way to say, I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. It's me. But uh, it's also uh, hard to miss that he is using the exact two words in Greek that if you were reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was circulating at that time, the Septuagint, and you were to read in Exodus where Moses is asking God, who, I, who do I tell Israel uh, is sent me to them? That those were the words in the Greek, ego, I me. I am sent you. That's exactly how Jesus responds. I am and you might think that, that that just means it's me. But notice what happens uh, immediately following this. And again, John pauses to say, and Judas, the one who was in that very moment handing him over, he was also standing there right with them. Again, we are reminded that Judas is right there in the mix of it all. But when Jesus says this, I am... There's something about that that carried a lot more weight than just saying, it's me. Because at that moment, the whole crowd drew back and fell to the ground. There's no way to explain that other than that there was something spiritually about the authority with which Jesus claimed the divine name, I am Something in the souls of even people who did not believe. Something in their souls reacted to that with an understanding. I stand before something far greater than me and I have to fall to the ground before him. Such was the power and authority Jesus wielded. He didn't have any weapons on him. He had no army, although... Turns out the disciples had scrounged a couple of swords together, but at that point, uh, there's none of that visible. There was nothing about Jesus that should have caused them to fall to the ground other than the bare fact that he is God. And when he spoke, in their souls, they knew it. So Jesus has to coax them off the ground to get them to do what they need to do. He asks again, whom do you seek? And they answer the same way, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go away. And John reminds us there, so that the word that he had spoken might be fulfilled. Out of those whom you have given me, I did not lose a single one. In the previous chapter, Jesus has, in his prayer to the Father, has said, I haven't lost a single one of them except the son of destruction who was destined for that. And he's talking about Judas. But all the others, I have preserved those who belong to me. In this moment, Jesus is not only guaranteeing that they arrest him, but he's also guaranteeing that they do not harm any of the disciples he's going to be using to establish the church and begin sharing the message with the rest of the world. 
You might say, okay, well, the Romans tended to arrest the ringleader and assume that once they kill the ringleader, the movement is going to dissipate anyway. And that's true, but I'm going to say in just a moment as we keep reading, Peter is going to pull out that sword and he's going to attack somebody. And my guess is that standard procedure for Roman soldiers was, if you pull a sword on us, you're going down. And yet Peter was not arrested. In fact, as the story continues, he's even going to be able to follow them and stick around in the outer courtyard while they're interrogating Jesus. Jesus had such control of the situation that he ensured that despite whatever else might be happening, they only did exactly what they needed to do. He needed to be arrested. He needed to give his life willingly. And the disciples had to be preserved. And Jesus controlled everything about that situation. It's clear in John's narrative that Jesus, not the arresting mob, was in control. How have you seen God in control in circumstances where evil forces seem to have the upper hand? Let's keep reading verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a short sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. But Jesus said to Peter, put the short sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? John is the only gospel writer. All the gospel writers tell us that somebody pulled out a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's slave. John's the only one who tells us it was Peter. Everybody else just says one of the disciples. I guess they're, they're trying to, they figure they've, they've told us enough bad stuff about Peter. They don't need to get into all the details. But uh, I think John is very interested in Peter. Because one thing I think John makes clear in his gospel is that following Jesus is a difficult thing. And even somebody like Peter, and I have to think at this moment, Jesus is only, uh, earlier that very same evening, Jesus has told Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, you are going to deny three times that you even know me. And Peter says, that is impossible. I would never do that. And no doubt, he brought that short, saying, short sword saying, if something happens, I'm going to prove to Jesus that I'm ready to lay down my life for him. And when it happens, and there it is, and the whole Roman cohort is there with the officers from the high priest, the chief priests, and the Pharisees, he's ready to die for Jesus. He pulls out his sword and says, bring it. Of course, he's a fisherman, not a soldier. All he manages to do is cut off someone's ear, which is hardly going to stop him. But he's certainly willing to step forward and prove to Jesus, I'm with you. But Jesus turns to him and says, put that thing back. Put it back in its sheath. And I think John has more interest than any of the gospel writers in helping us to track with Peter 
This idea of a disciple who really loves Jesus, who wants so desperately to prove to Jesus that he's really serious about it and he wants to do the right thing, but it seems like the harder he tries, the more he messes up and the more disastrous his failures are. And this is going to be the first, but before the night's over, he is going to deny three times that he knows anything about Jesus. He's going to fail so miserably and John wants us to track with Peter and discover in his gospel that the important thing isn't how successful we are as disciples. The important thing is how awesome Jesus is at carrying us through. He's going to carry Peter through all of this, even restoring him at the end in a very powerful and important way. And we need to know that going into faith, that following Jesus is going to be difficult, and we are going to find out in the process just how great our shortcomings are, just how much less good than we thought we were, we are. And it's not going to matter. That's the whole point of this good news that Jesus can rescue us even if we're messing up all the time. Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, if you've read the other gospel accounts, you know that when they got to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was troubled, and he had an intense time of prayer about the cross. And he left the disciples and went a bit away and brought with him... uh, Peter and James and John, and then even moved a little further away from them and asked the three of them, stay and pray and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell to the ground and pleaded with the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. We know that happened three times. Every time he got back, he found the disciples sleeping. John doesn't mention any of that. And you might think he's not aware of that struggle. But he obviously is because he quotes something the other Gospels don't tell us, something Jesus said to Peter when he attacked Malchus. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus has already wrestled in prayer with the issue of the cross and what is coming and has come to peace with it. And he is boldly stepping forward and moving through with obedience to the Father. The Father has said, no, you must drink this cup. And the Son has stepped up and said, I'm doing it. Peter, I can't not do what the Father has asked me to do. Sometimes our greatest struggle as disciples of Jesus is surrendering our idea of how it should work out to God's divine sovereignty and what he is up to. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter loved Jesus, and he was desperate to please him. But he always found himself doing the wrong thing, How have you experienced similar moments in your walk with Jesus? And how has he dealt with you? A 
Let's keep reading verse 12. Then the military unit and the commander of unit and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him. And they brought him to Annas first, for he was Caiaphas's father-in-law, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it is better that one man die for the people. So the arrest takes place. The military unit, there's the commander of that military unit is there with them. The officers of the Jews, all those people are there. They grab Jesus and they tie him up. John's the only one that tells us that before they brought him before Caiaphas, the high priest, they took him to the house of his father-in-law, Annas. And he explains uh, why he was Caiaphas's father-in-law. Even though Caiaphas was high priest that particular year, Annas had been high priest in the past. He was high priest from the year 6 to the year 15. And in the year 15, the Romans kicked him out of office and put somebody else there. But Annas remained powerfully enough connected to the political life of Jerusalem that he managed to have all five of his sons stand in that position as high priest through the years. And this particular year, the guy who happens to be high priest, Annas has finagled that it end up being his son-in-law. So it's very clear who's running the political landscape in Jerusalem right now. And that's why before they take Jesus to Caiaphas, they take him to the guy who's really pulling the strings, Annas, first. He wants the first crack at him. It's interesting in this that we see John points out to us how the guy who seems to be in charge isn't quite the guy in charge. There's somebody else kind of manipulating behind the scenes. But there's even a bigger picture of who's really in charge here. He reminds us, Caiaphas is the one earlier in my gospel I told you about. He's the one that said, it's better for one man to die for the people. And John has told us that Caiaphas, being high priest, was prophesying. Now, at that moment, Caiaphas was very callously saying, guys, we have built a good thing for ourselves here. We're raking in the money. We are powerful. Rome has secured our position. We don't want anybody upsetting the apple cart. And it's a lot better for all of us if we just eliminate this one troublemaker. We'll all be much happier. Let's get rid of Jesus and things will be much better for all of us. That was the intent of his words. But what he actually said, it's better for the people for one person to die rather than the people. Which ends up being exactly what Jesus was going to do. And he becomes a prophet unwittingly. He doesn't know what he's saying. But who is in control of all of this? Who is orchestrating the events so that even the worst enemy, the guy who is moving the forces and the strings to try to get Jesus killed, even he is speaking the truth of what God is up to. He can't help himself. Jesus is about to give his life for the world. He is going to die so that the rest of the world does not have to die. We see a contrast here between men and their scheming and their pushing and finagling and moving things around and trying to accomplish their ends and God executing his plan. 
Guess which of those two actually happens perfectly the way it was intended. Men think they control things. We think we're running things. We're, we lose so much sleep over it and we push and finagle and manipulate and try to make things happen the way we think they have to happen. But you know who's really in control of the story of creation? God is. And you know what? The story of creation is a redemption story because God is the one in control. It is better that one man die for the people. That's why the Father sent Jesus. Even as they sought to destroy God's Messiah, Jesus' enemies only succeeded in implementing God's redemption plan. What does this tell you about the true nature of things in the world today? Who controls the fate of the cosmos? Many assume that the universe is just plodding along, untended, haphazardly stumbling forward with no purpose or direction. Sometimes it can look that way. The Bible paints a very different picture. God not only created everything, but he has remained deeply involved in his creation, especially in the fate of humankind, a creature he created in his own image and likeness. And yes, sin has brought chaos and devastation into the world. We can think that it's all out of control, just spinning out of control. But John reminds us that God himself stepped into our world and loved humans who were at war with him, enemies who rejected and betrayed him, and disciples who were constantly making terrible mistakes. Despite the efforts of his enemies, Jesus orchestrated the events leading to his death on the cross perfectly. And he preserved the lives of his disciples who would be his witnesses in the world. He did all of this so that we could find in him rescue from the evil and chaos around us. My question to you this morning is have you trusted your heart to Jesus? The one who is writing the story of the rescue of the cosmos. We're going to have a time of response now. When we listen to the Word of God, I think God calls for a response from us. And uh, maybe you don't know Jesus. Uh, You have not trusted your heart to Him. I want to encourage you today to fix that. Trust Him. Come before Him and say, Jesus, I want you to be God in my life. And I want to surrender my whole life to you. And I want you to do the rescue work in me that you came to do. Take my life. Do the amazing thing only you can do with it. If that's you this morning, this is your time to make that commitment. Maybe you already know Christ and he's calling you to some renewed commitment of some sort. Whatever he's laying on your heart, tell him, I will. I'm here. I will trust you and I will follow whatever you're asking of me. 
Maybe you just want to pray. We have the altar open at this time if you want to just come forward and kneel. But if you do want to pray with somebody, we have two blinds at the back, and I'd like to ask the couples to go ahead and make their way back there. Well, there'll be a, a couple at each one. Uh, just share with them whatever God's laid on your heart. Let them pray with you and encourage you. Let's all stand. Please come while we sing.